0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: Quarantine Island, the new home of outgoing Green MP Gareth Hughes. Kind of sounds like the punchline to a joke or yeah, somewhat ironic, but yeah, moving to Quarantine Island in the middle of a global pandemic probably is a smart decision. Outgoing Green MP Gareth Hughes there in a TVNZ news piece last weekend all about his impending move to an island in Otago Harbour on which the only inhabitants will be his family. That seems like a pretty effective way of leaving parliamentary politics behind and judging by some of the tensions between politicians and the media lately, a few other MPs might fancy that sort of isolation. But there was one more duty in the House for Gareth Hughes before exile on Quarantine Island. There is some work left to do, though, before Gareth moves here full time, like writing his valedictory speech. The Greens' former broadcasting spokesperson's valedictory on Tuesday turned out to be fairly grievance free, but not so the one by the former Minister of Broadcasting that followed. Claire Curran was not going quietly before her political retirement in Dunedin when it came to the media.
0: Politicians in the news media focus on conflict, perceived or real slip ups, rather than substance in the quality of ideas. It's time to have a serious discussion about how we practice politics in this country and how politics is reported.
1: And we'll have a serious discussion about that in a minute with the former minister. And Claire Curran wasn't the only outgoing MP to have a crack at them in her farewell speech.
0: Outgoing national MP Sarah Dowie's unleashed on media for their treatment of the Jamie Lee Ross saga. Last year, Dowie was revealed to be the MP that had been in a relationship with Ross – Dowie told the House there are times when the media fraternity needs to audit itself on its ethics and peddling of sexism and patriarchy.
1: Invercargill MP Sarah Dowie said the media calling for a clean-up of politicians right now was hypocrisy and she got lots of applause and hugs in the House after telling the media to go and audit themselves. But Newstalk ZB political editor Barry Soper wasn't taking that to heart. Yeah, but hang on a minute. It wasn't the media who went public with the affair. It was Jamie Lee Ross. And it wasn't the media who sent a text to Ross uh, wishing him dead. Yeah. And it wasn't the media who dragged the story out. And it wasn't the media who lifted the bed sheets on the affair. It was none other than Paula Bennett. Barry Soper said, more or less, she started it with that now-notorious text message to MP gone rogue Jamie Lee Ross, which became an explosive news story last year. But Sarah Dowie had already made her feelings clear about the media coverage of all that in the Sunday Star Times the weekend before. She told Stuff political reporter Andrea Vance the treatment of her amounted to slut-shaming. And in a lengthy video interview with Melanie Reed of Newsroom, Sarah Dowie said that Jamie Lee Ross, who she called a predator, had been allowed to set the media narrative. And Melanie Reed picked out coverage from that time from News Hub like this. Jamie Lee Ross says that text led to his nervous breakdown.
2: Driving around his electorate, Jamie Lee Ross revisits the worst moment of his life.
0: It was my children that stopped me from actually
2: going through with hurting myself. Police have now confirmed they're investigating an abusive text message sent to Ross by an MP he had an affair with, telling him he deserved to die.
1: After Sarah Dowie's valedictory speech in the House last week, Claire Curran said this to News Talk ZB's political editor Barry Soper.
0: There is a toxic culture in our parliament, but I think you guys need to turn the mirror on yourselves as well and take responsibility for how you report things and how you comment on us. Just go and ask anybody in the street. They will be disgusted at some of the political
1: reporting that is happening in our country. And that cut little ice with Barry Soper. Yeah, well, I'd suggest uh, the reporting simply reflects what's going on in the place. We can't be held responsible for what they get up to uh, and what they put out there. I think it's called taking responsibility as far as the politicians go. I tend
0: to agree with you, Barry. I mean, I have sympathy for the – I've said this before. I have sympathy for Claire Curran um, and and, and also for Sarah Dowie for the fact that they – you know, having that kind of pressure and that intensity of the attention is not fun – um, but unfortunately it does come with the territory somewhat. They're, they hold public office. Yeah, and and, yeah. and while I think both of these women are sort of, you know, um, doing the whole crybaby victim thing in public, um, neither of them have been stellar performers, right? So,
1: you know... No. However, the NBR political editor Brent Edwards did think journalists should be taking note of what Sarah Dowie and other politicians had to say this past week about the way they work. The one thing the media don't get in this place or don't recognise is what part they play in politics and, and the coverage of politics, and that means, and when we go back for instance to the way that media organisations took the material from Hamish Walker for instance for political purposes, didn't disclose where they got the information from, yet ran stories about this great leak and how it was terrible, who was the leaker, when they knew. I mean, you know, it does raise questions sometimes about the media coverage in this place. But I think from Sarah Dowie's perspective, she sees the media sort of sitting on the high horse and judging the politicians when, in fact, they may be engaging in similar um, activity. But politicians aren't only unhappy with stories about MPs' personal lives. It's a style of political reporting that they say has increased the intensity of the focus on those who hold public office. After Sarah Dowie's speech, Claire Curran took it up a notch when she told reporters at Parliament there was too much commentary and slurs that go alongside it in political coverage and she said that she was afraid that someone would die before the media changed their ways. Last Monday on RNZ National, when NewsHub political editor Tova O'Brien was asked whether Sarah Dowie was right to say that political reporters were partly to blame for a toxic culture in Parliament, she responded with the defence of her own handling of the Sarah Dowie Jamie Lee Ross story. And then when asked about Claire Curran's claims that political reporting had become destructive and even endangered the mental health of people in politics, her response was interesting.
2: Her view is important, and it's important for us to always keep a check on ourselves and to be uh, mindful of the human side of the story and to take into account well-being and mental health. It's important to consult with your colleagues when you're reporting on things. I've got an incredible team in my office, really smart empathetic thoughtful journalists and we talk a lot and we workshop every story and certainly in those more challenging stories like uh, the Sarah Dowie story the Jamie Lee Ross story I do that in concert with my bosses and our legal counsel, people whose opinions I trust and we are always always weighing up the human side because that is that is important for me as a journalist it's also critically important for me as a person.
0: But have you ever had a story and thought, well, we won't run this one because it might impact the mental health of the person who it's about?
2: Yes, yes, quite a few times, and we haven't.
1: The following day, which was Tuesday, it was Claire Curran's turn to get things off her chest one last time in Parliament in her valedictory speech.
0: Politicians should be held accountable, but we are not prey. The accountability lacks perspective. If you don't believe me, go ask the public.
1: Now by you, Claire Curran meant political reporters and she then moved on to address them directly like this.
0: You are not unaccountable, though you act as though you are. Your mandate derives from the citizens of this country. Please use it wisely and maturely. You are neither judge nor jury. Remember that your power and the notion of media freedom that you protect so fiercely rests on a promise of service to the democratic public. You are accountable to them.
1: But media organisations are accountable to regulators and complaints bodies, and reporters are accountable to their editors and their outlets' editorial principles. Politicians feeling like they're under attack from a hostile media is nothing new, so I asked Claire Curran this week whether anything had really changed in recent times.
0: Um, You talked about internal checks and balances. I think in many news organisations, those internal checks and balances uh, have disappeared. And, you know, the journalist writes this story, pretty much posts it straight online. I don't know whether they actually have got to the point where they're writing their own headlines. But,
1: you know, we, we are at that point. What's an example, though, of if you say you're not unaccountable, though you act as though you are? What can you point to as an example of... It's so that a, you feel like the journalists have published something they shouldn't have or broadcast something they really shouldn't have.
0: I really have tried hard not to um, point the finger at any anyone specifically, but I'll give a couple of examples, and one of them's from your own organisation. This week, following my valedictory, RNZ's news story um, led with a headline that said sacked MPs, Lise Galloway and Curran, give their farewells from Parliament, and yet I I resigned as a minister. That framing has persisted throughout the last two years that somehow I was sacked as a minister, and it's simply um, not true. Yes, I was removed from Cabinet. I was a minister. Um, There was a way back for me into Cabinet, but the relentless hounding of me, all this is very public now, um, led to me resigning as a minister. And the other example I'll give is again a headline which created... Uh, what the headline said, which was pandemonium, which was the New Zealand Herald's front page huge headline. That was
1: the day after the first recorded case of COVID-19 yeah. in, in New Zealand, which yes. happened to be in, in Auckland.
0: Yes, which which created a, uh, an enormous sense of panic amongst the population, um, which was outrageous in, in any context that you want to give it. You know, what I've been trying to do is draw attention to this. And I think I described it in an interview or when I was in a stand up recently, where I said, You guys are players. You've become players rather than um, reporters. And you're. And and it's not that there isn't a place for commentary within media, there is, but it should be labelled commentary. But commentary is in our news reporting. It's in our news reporting every day and it's and we are being told what to think about things as they are reported.
1: But, by but the comment, journalists. But commentary's not new though. I mean No, no, wh- commentary's not new. But it's um, You described it as destructive. In your speech, why is it destructive to have people who know their stuff, you know, political journalists who've been around for a while, particularly in the likes of, you know, political editors who have some license to analyse and interpret rather than just, you know, report? Why is it destructive if they get to say what they think about the way certain politicians have performed or how well or badly a certain policy has been put in place?
0: If they are writing commentary pieces to say, what they as a should-be senior political journalist, editor, whatever, think about a situation, commentary has an important place. If they're writing news stories and they inject their own views into the news stories, you tell me, do you think that's appropriate?
1: But if it's clear in the minds of the reader what's commentary and what's a news story, then there's no problem?
0: The lines are blurred.
1: Some of this is personal for you. You got heavily targeted, criticised. Um, you've made the point, I think, in an interview with Donna Chisholm that um, you know, Shane Jones uh, had sort of off-the-books meetings in a way that you know you ended up in the news for uh, in a couple of instances and didn't get the same level of scrutiny or coverage. But in the end, if, if you mess up in government, the opposition will target you. The media will report that. That's kind of the way the cycle works.
0: No, it's not new. It's deepening and getting worse, I think, is what I've said. It's exacerbated by the way that the news cycle has changed and the constant need to refresh the news cycle to generate the click. And every news outlet, even the one that I believe should be holding the rest of the media to a higher standard, is being driven by that rather than adhere to a purpose in RNZ's, case, a a charter of responsibility. Every media organisation should be adhering to its own sense of internal accountabilities. And I think you've already said that. But is it? And is that top of mind in journalists' mind or in news editors' minds when a story is being created? There are other drivers that have become more important.
1: Well, with that in mind... um... You said um, politicians and the news media focus on conflict, perceived or real slip-ups, this is in your valedictory speech, rather than substance and the quality of ideas. But if it's slip-ups, if they're not inventing the slip-ups, it's totally legit, isn't it, for political reporters to tell the public whether they think the politicians have made a mess of things or not on their behalf?
0: Yeah, but uh, telling the public what to think before something's even happened, is that legitimate?
1: You did say when addressing the journalists if you don't believe me, ask the public um, when you were talking about their accountability. then uh, Aren't the news media accountable to the public in the end? If reporters' behaviour or the style of their reporting turns them off, that would be the ultimate break on their conduct.
0: And my immediate response is that that is such a cop-out.
1: But are you sure the public is is turned off by this? Um, because the public still turns on and watches some of the style of coverage that you, you think needs reform.
0: And, uh, and how many people sit in front of their televisions every night shouting at their televisions. Look, you know, there's empirical evidence that uh, that there is declining trust uh, in our media. Rather than counting clicks, it, it's more beneficial to be looking a bit behind what the public actually is thinking and feeling.
1: Well, some of that might be to do with, as you said, there's a type of commentary you described as actually destructive. I mean, you've had some experience of it Personally, I know uh, that's how you feel, and you talked about that particularly in that interview with Donna Chisholm. But kind of commentary, um, particularly in coverage of politics, actually do you think crosses the line into something that's destructive rather than just harsh but fair or contestable analysis?
0: Well, again, I don't want to give specific examples, but...
1: Well, people would probably quite like it if you did, I know because, they, I know because they then would. they would know exactly what, what sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah. It doesn't have to be personal, but... Um, is it that fear of people will be dissuaded from taking up public office because they think the scrutiny and the comment is going to be too intense?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I can tell you for a fact that um, of the conversations that I've had with um, potential new incoming MPs and the uh, apprehension that's felt by people around the level of scrutiny that they're faced with and... Um, especially um, for people who have a, I guess, a, a non-adversarial, a non combative approach to their lives and, and how that's going to impact them. Um, like I say, it's, you know, entering Parliament and the realm of political reporting is like, you know, being in a sausage factory. You have to conform and behave in certain ways in order to succeed. and And certain qualities are picked out as being... Um, of more value than others, and your ability to be cutting to do the cut and thrust and to be witty and the quick repartee and um speaking on your feet and brushing things off um is seen as more valuable than the substance of your ideas
1: but don't you think journalists really cut through that, particularly the senior ones, the political editors and no
0: I do want to say though that there is some very high quality journalism in this country, and i you know, I've tried to say that consistently as well. But unfortunately, that is the way that our media environment, for all the reasons that we you've talked about over the years, um, the pressures, the external pressures, um, has evolved. You know, if there is to be a state intervention into this, it's really critical that it's value-adding. And, I, you know, and I, I'll put in a plug here for local reporting in the region's there has been some investment in that. It is starting to show the benefits of local reporting, especially local government report, more local government reporting. What I'm really asking for is reflection within our media environment for, for people to actually, who work in it, to actually think about their role in it.
1: Well, actually, on that, so you were reluctant to name examples. Maybe I'll run one by you, Simon Bridges, when he was opposition leader. There was a leak to News Hub of his car travel spending, uh, more than any opposition leader had spent before in a similar position. This was going to be made public, I think, by the end of the week, but it was leaked to News Hub pretty clearly to damage Simon Bridges. And he found himself having to answer questions about what looked like exorbitant spending. And... When the dust settled, it turned out that actually the charge out rate for Crown cars for the leader of the for some weird reason is a lot higher than it is for other ministers. And actually, what looked like a, a fairly high level of spending wasn't completely out of whack with what other opposition leaders had spent. And it looked in the end as though that wasn't the public interest in revealing that wasn't especially huge. Is that an example of something where you think that the desire to comment and and so on is perhaps? Um, you know, where the desire for a good story had got ahead of the facts?
0: Yeah, I think it's a really good example. It's the catastrophizing and sensationalizing of something that once it's actually looked closely at was not a catastrophe.
1: And yet in the end, the effect would be, well, OK, that was tough on him in that particular circumstance, but, you know, that he's a senior politician and that lets them all know that if they are cavalier with spending... The media could find out one way or another and, you know, that's a break on their behaviour. I guess that's what journalists would say. In the end, that's where the public interest lies.
0: But again, isn't that, you know, a kind of, like, an exercise of power by journalists before a wrongdoing occurs As as a, like, a warning shot to say, watch out because, you know, just in case you do something wrong... Um, we can get you, but the core issue, you know, around Simon Bridges' expenses um, was um, was not properly examined at the time in terms of what its context was and how proportional it was in terms of some perceived wrongdoing. That's hard, but it, I guess, it generated lots of
1: stories before uh, your valedictory speech. Tova O'Brien of the political editor of NewsHub. She said several times uh, News Hub had decided not to broadcast items that might have had a really negative impact on people. Um, She wasn't specific about it, but she said legal counsel and editors are involved with these decisions, so it sounds like they do actually take it seriously.
0: Yeah, I am encouraged by what Tova said. I haven't actually listened to her interview. I've heard reports about it, but I think she kind of missed the point a bit. There is a very legitimate argument and discussion to be had about the kind of reporting where, um, you know, politicians have fallen over for one reason or another and that there have been questions of mental health associated with it. But I think what Sarah Dowie was talking about, to a large degree, was about gendered reporting, was about reporting that was portraying her from a gendered point of view. And I, I don't think Tova addressed that I think there's a really legitimate uh, discussion to be had around that. I mean, and, I, and
1: yet, in the parliamentary press gallery right now, there are more women in right? it and more, and in which senior... Is, in fact, they dominate these senior editorial which, positions for our major media news organisations. And, and
0: the point that I've been trying to make, if the journalists will listen, <laughs> is that it's not any of them individually that are the problem. It's the system in which they operate, I know as a politician, having been in Parliament for 12 years, that I've become institutionalised in my responses in the House, you know, the shouting out during question time, the adversarial responses that we have to each other. That is not my nature. My speech went further than addressing the gallery. It went to the core of the adversarial system that we operate within. I kind of think to myself guys could you just have a bit of a think and a reflect i haven't seen one piece yet written by a journalist saying well hang on a minute maybe we do need to have a think about our role in all of this and and that's really what i've been asking them to do it is a taboo subject to criticize the media and when you do there are consequences and i've found over
1: um do you think specific outlets yep. have been unfair to you because of that or have, have increased their, their scrutiny or the harshness or whatever that they yep. they comment on you because they're storing up a grievance because you've said things about the media uh, in general? Yeah.
0: Well, yes is probably the answer to that. And, um, um, and you know, I'm not being defensive because, it, you know, it's a fact. If you go and do an analysis, which I have done, of the... The time that I was a minister, um, the sheer number of negative stories about me by certain media outlets um, were far outweighed um, other issues that were running at the time.
1: But but I guess they would say, well, you know, you you made slip ups, they reported on it, it became headline worthy, that's what happens. Yeah, but,
0: you know, proportionally, you know, we're talking tens of times more in terms of the number of stories, the number of negative words, concepts being used.
1: So, for, for example, you raised it, I think, in the interview you did with Donna Chisholm recently, where um, you said, for example, uh, Shane Jones um, has had been criticised for and reported on meetings he's had that haven't been properly documented. There were plenty of headlines about two meetings that, that you had, which ultimately had a bearing on whether you could stay on as a minister or not. Um, so that's one. Ex- is that an example of what yeah, you are talking yeah. about? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's one example. I mean, and and I'm being quite <laughs> being quite honest here when I say that it was around ten times the number amount of reporting on me for not recording two meetings in my diary, than Shane Jones experienced for him not reporting sixty one meetings in his diary. So, um, you know, I guess the question is, where's the proportionality around that? Um, but this isn't just didn't just apply to my um, my time as a minister. It, it really has applied right from the moment that I entered parliament, and um, it's come in waves at times. But um, there have been certain media outlets that have have, have certainly featured m- many negative stories on me,
1: even um, when you were an opposition MP, yeah. not not a minister. Yeah. And can you tell us where those media outlets are? Which um, ones they are?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, so um, certain morning programs on TV, um, uh, News Talk ZB, and yeah, and and from some quite senior media commentators in this country.
1: Well, I understand your reluctance to say who they are, but is, do you think it's personal for them as individuals that they are feeling this about you, and they uh, that's where the imbalance, as you see it, comes from? Or do you think it's an editorial policy of these media outlets that here's someone who's saying things about the media making us look bad maybe and you know we'll get her
0: I think it's an adage um, in politics that you like I say you don't criticize the media it's a taboo subject and when you do you there are consequences and I have suffered the consequences whether that's driven by um, editorial policy um, or particular, you know, media entities and or people within the media. Um, it could be a mixture of both. I don't, to be honest, I don't know. I did get asked that question by um, somebody writing a book about the media um, last year, and I couldn't give a definitive answer. Um, I don't, I don't, you know, I th- I think it's a bit sad and a bit silly, really, um, because good discussion and debate about issues is always more important um, than trying to squash discussion and debate. And like I say, until the media take a good look at themselves in the mirror and start to reflect on their role, um, then we won't have constructive change in the quality of debate and discussion in New Zealand.
1: Well, you also uh, finally in your valedictory said of RNZ, um, it's lost its way in holding all media to a higher standard. What's, how has that happened, and what should RNZ be doing differently?
0: Yeah, so it's the move to a, the perceived move to a competitive uh, model, where RNZ's place in the media landscape is as a competitor with other news outlets, rather than holding a special, central place in our landscape, which is based on a charter that puts public interest at the centre of that. Whereas what I see happening, and I'm not the only one, is that RNZ's news is moving to a more competitive model.
1: But isn't RNZ more of an ally to the rest of the media than it's ever been? It's giving away its content to any other media organisation, big or small.
0: Well, didn't RNZ run an advertising campaign a few months ago um, that, Put it out there as a competitor with other news agencies.
1: So competitor for audience, clearly not for yeah. um, revenue or anything like that. But you think so? You think there's a culture now at RNZ which is about maximising the audience and that it's not sufficiently distinctive as a publicly funded outfit should be? Is that it?
0: Well, in my valedictory, I I carefully said I fear. So I think that there's a direction of travel.
1: But you d- you did specifically say holding all media to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. So. What what are they not doing, or, or should they be doing, in order to elevate that standard?
0: Providing a coverage which puts public interest at the core of that. There's been discussions in Australia around the purpose of the ABC. You know, where are the discussions in New Zealand about what is the core purpose of RNZ? I think we started to go in that direction uh, when RNZ Concerts Future. Um, seem to hang in the balance but we're not having those discussions we should be and I think that that shows a, a lack of um, understanding and a, a sort of ill-informed view uh, within our media sector to be honest about what how just how important RNZ is
1: So when you say lost its way in holding all media to a higher standard, do you think perhaps RNZ is doing too much of what other media yeah. do rather than trying to do something specifically for the public interest that would be something of a contrast to what the rest of the Absolutely. Okay. And when you came into government in 2017, I mean, you wanted to make RNZ the cornerstone of broadcasting policy. It was announced by Jacinda Ardern before the election, this policy of injecting the $38 million into public media, not just RNZ, but but that was the focus of it. Um, I mean, that never happened. Um, What actually did happen to that policy? Because now it's very different. The policy is public entity to replace RNZ and state-owned TVNZ.
0: Yes, that was the policy going into the election. Again, referring back to my valedictory, that successive governments have either ignored media reform and public interest media, um, the Labour government that we partially started a process. Uh, I had a number of projects uh, underway when I stopped being the minister. One of those was to be looking at what a proper public interest media entity would look like. Out of that came a report which essentially recognised that um, RNZ and TVNZ needed to somehow mo- move together. I would have approached that differently, but I don't disagree with that um, conclusion. I made the point that until um, this becomes core policy, then nothing's going to change.
1: To quote from your speech, until public media reform becomes core policy, our democracy continues to be at risk and our toxic political and media culture will worsen. But is that the problem here, that effectively some finance minister in a government, whether it's one that wants to reform public media or not, and invest in it, in the end it's a finance minister that will say, sorry, we can't do it, we've got more important things to do? Is that the eternal stumbling block?
0: I think it goes a little bit beyond the finance minister, but it is an eternal stumbling block. And I look at the UK and Australia because they have such clear commitments to their public interest media entities. With the BBC and, and the ABC, we just never got there. It, we are we are reaping the, the consequences of that now. My biggest fear is that TVNZ, which is the much larger organisation with a very strong commercial culture would dominate the smaller public interest entity RNZ, which is why I had approached it from the position of building RNZ to the point where it was a stronger, much more confident entity
1: there was Claire Curran, former Minister of Broadcasting and MP for South Dunedin since nineteen ninety nine, who's standing down at the upcoming election, and who finished up in Parliament this week with a farewell speech with some messages for the media, and as we heard, she wasn't the only one. You can hear more of what she had to say about that and the future of government policy on broadcasting and the media, which is currently up in the air, in the online version of the story. We'll also find video versions of her valedictory speech to Parliament this week and the one from last week by Sarah Dowie, MP.